Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 46 of the Mandolin's Beer Podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you this week by Peghead Nation with Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including Beginning Mandolin and Intermediate Bluegrass Mandolin and the new course, Bluegrass Mandolin Fingerboard Method with Sharon Gilchrist, Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, Monroe-style mandolin with Mike Compton, melodic mandolin tunes with John Reichman, chord melody mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish mandolin with Marla Feibish, and theory for mandolin and fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word at checkout. It's also brought to you this week as well by AnyTune, which is my favorite app for transcribing music. You can slow songs down, you can change the pitch, you can loop areas, uh, and then the, the the coolest thing they have is their reframe, which is where you can go through and target whatever instrument you're looking for to transcribe and just zero right in on that instrument. It pretty much makes everything else in the background disappear. And uh, you can go to AnyTune. If you go to mandolinsofbeer.com, you can find the link uh, on my sponsor page, where you can go right to any three of those websites, uh, but you can go to any tune and it's free to get the uh, to get the app to use all the time. And then there's some add-ons you can do to make the app even more functional. But to try it out, it's free, and I highly recommend it. I've been using it every single day, uh, so check it out. Um, also at mandolinsofbeer.com, Nate and I talk about um, a resource that he has on his Play Nately website. You can go there. You can find the link also at mandolinsofbeer.com where he has um, some books that really helped him um, helped him along his journey. And I've read a few of them and, uh, and I've purchased a few of them from that list, and they're great. So if you want to check that out, there's a link there for you to get that as well. And let's get into this episode with Nate. Um, it's, his new album uh, is, is just phenomenal. His uh, playing sounds great, and it's a, just a great collection of songs, Wings of a Jetliner. We're going to talk about that, but first we're going to get to know Nate. And uh, cheers, everybody. Be sure to uh, subscribe, leave a review on the iTunes store if you get a chance, and uh, let's get into the episode. Cheers. Now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Nate Lee. Nate, how you doing? Hey, I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Daniel. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you for, for doing it. You, um, you've got, you're a busy guy, but it's about to get even busier in about a month you were just mentioning. Oh, yeah. Got a baby coming in a month, and uh, I'll be taking a month off teaching to help balance that a little bit. <laughs> that is amazing. Congratulations. Oh, well, thank you so much. We're really excited about it. And, uh, yeah, it'll be a whole new, this is my first one, so this will be a whole new thing for me. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, man. That's great. And then and then you also mentioned teaching there, so I think now would be a real good time to mention Play Nately, your, uh, your, your teaching platform. Yeah, it's my, my teaching business, and also we have a Facebook community, uh, a Facebook group where we just talk about music and learn. You don't have to be one of my students to join the group. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I've really enjoyed playing and performing and recording, but I've always really loved to teach my whole life. Um, and so it's just something I really enjoy doing. I teach about 25, 30 students a week online. Wow. And, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, they were actually almost all online too, before quarantine, including <laughs> people who live here right in Nashville with, you know, 30 miles away. They just, I, we like the online thing. And then I teach about, oh, six or seven music camps a year. Uh, not this year, uh, yeah, but <laughs> yeah. normally. Man, those music camps, um, I unfortunately have never been able to make it to one just because I'm always, always playing, it seems like. and um, But wow, just what an incredible experience they all look like. And they're just, it's like a super lineup of players at every one of these camps every time I look at one. <laughs> 
it's amazing. I came up through music camp, specifically Camp Bluegrass out in Leveling, Texas. And uh, it was a really great way to, to learn to play and get to know the, I mean, a lot of the people I perform with now are people I met when I was real young at those music camps. No kidding. How long have you been teaching at the camps when you do, or started teaching at camps, I should say? So I have been teaching at camps for 18 years now. <laughs> Holy cow, man. Yeah, my first one I was 15, and uh, I wasn't. I started out not very good at it, but I got better. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got to jam with some pretty cool players at some of these camps? Oh yeah, quite a few. Uh, you know, some of my some of uh, my bandmates I met through music camps and things like that for various bands I've been in. Ned Luperecki, our banjo player in the Becky Buller band, I used to pretty much follow him around when I was a teenager. Same for Jim Hurst and uh, just a bunch of those kinds of people. And, yeah, you get to meet great players. I started doing Kaufman Camp recently and got to meet a whole new batch of players, some who I'd heard of and some who I couldn't believe I'd never heard of. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool, man. And then on top of all these things, you've got a brand-new album coming out that I, um, I've been really enjoying these past few weeks. I got an advanced copy of it, and we played obviously played a song um, a few weeks ago on the podcast, uh, Rook Roller, which is so good. Um, but before we get into that, let's get Thank into you. a little bit about how you got into mandolin, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I, I started out with some Suzuki violin lessons when I was eight. I saw somebody play a violin. I wanted to play an instrument, and that looked good to me. And shortly after that, uh, we went to the Six Flags Over Texas Heritage Festival, and I saw somebody playing a mandolin in the string band. I'd never seen one before, and I just had to have it. And my <laughs> parents bought one for my sister. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, bought one for my sister. Um, and she, luckily for me, wasn't that interested in it. She wouldn't let me play it at first, but then she wasn't interested in it. So it became mine, and I've just been eaten up with it ever since. And I, I also play fiddle, and I really enjoy that, too. And for much of my career, people knew me as a fiddle player, but always the mandolin was the one that spoke to me the most. So uh, and I came up through music camps and uh, went to South Plains College in Leveland, Texas, and got my bluegrass degree there. And that's when I started playing with Alan Mundy. Uh, oh, wow. First as the mandolin and fiddle player, and they brought Steve Smith in uh, on mandolin and tenor singing because I didn't sing at the time really hardly at all, and especially not tenor. Uh, and that was my first first professional gig, stayed with that band for six years. I was at the right place at the right time because I was super green. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Who did you study with when um, – was that with – did Joe Carr? Is, was he one of the – instructors there oh yeah he's like a obi-wan kenobi and yoda and every other hero rolled into one yeah. i got to study with him it was incredible for four years and uh, ed marsh the fiddle teacher there learned so much from him and took a lot of lessons and ensembles from alan mundy as well wow how cool man that's an inc that's incredible it was really cool. There were so many great examples there of incredible musicianship. And the biggest takeaway was the first time I ever saw somebody have a connection between their fretboard and their head that did not require them to hold the instrument was Joe Carr. Turns out, you know, lots of people have that connection, but I had never seen that before. And, and Joe, he had MS and he passed away in 2014. Oh man. Um, he, toward the end there, he couldn't play his instrument. And, uh, but he didn't mean to to teach you. You'd go in there and you'd be like, there's this song I've got to do and I don't know what to play. And he'd get out a pencil and paper and he'd just start writing. And then he'd hand it to you and be like, play that. And then you'd play it. It'd be this incredible break to some song, sometimes one he didn't even know. <laughs> so do you read notation? I read notation in a functional manner. I couldn't go and sit in and just like read notation at speed, but I read enough to do what I need to do to learn something and to write it down to archive something. Cool, cool. Yeah, it's always interesting to be. Notation is one of those things where, boy, if you don't do it every day, you know, you study it for a little bit and then get away for it for a couple of weeks and you go back, you're like, oh, man. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I do have on my, on my list of things I want to do is I would like to be a faster sight reader, uh, but it has taken the back burner to other things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. I bet you got a lot going on, man. 
Who were some of your um, early CDs uh, that you were listening to that, you know, you, you couldn't live without at the time? Oh, man. So um, the the first one that I just listened to like crazy was one that's really hard to find. It's called Mandolins and Friends. Have you ever heard of it? No, I haven't, actually. It's kind of an obscure recording. So there's this guy, I've never met him. He lives here in Nashville, I think, named Mark Howard. And he was one of the ones involved in a bunch of those CDs you'd get at, like Cracker Barrel and stuff like that, I think. Like oh, okay. He was involved in a lot of sort of compilation projects, and he's an engineer and stuff, I assume still is. But the album was called Mandolins and Friends. It had Richard Bailey and Blaine Sprouse and Jerry Douglas on it. Oh, wow. And Yeah, yeah. And I got it as a cassette tape and uh, when I was a teenager, about 13 or something, and just wore it out. I recently, <laughs> a couple of years ago, bought it on a CD again. It is just great mandolin picking and great tunes. And it just, it's not really, it's hard to define the genre. It's, it's the genre that I just call mandolin, you know? It's yeah. Cool mandolin tunes and played really well. That's awesome. Well, it sounds like it was an influence. It sounds a lot like your your new album, buddy. <laughs> great mandolin oh, album. Played you. real well. <laughs> <laughs> but again, we'll, oh, man. Well, thank you. we'll get into that though in uh, in a little bit. What other um, what about players that um that you were listening to as well? So the earliest influences for me were uh, Sam Bush was the very first one. My dad belonged to one of those CD clubs that used to you know you could go and you get a certain amount of CDs per month or something. Right, right, and. He accidentally bought two copies of Sam Bush Howlin' at the Moon. And when that came, he called me into his office. He's like, hey, I've got two of these. Do you want the other one or should I send it back? And I wanted it. another really major influence which is um and i think most people who listen to this podcast have probably encountered this at some point but there was a video called the tony rice video collection and it was tony rice unit and the all-star jam and uh things of that nature from merle fest sometime in the 80s oh yeah so it was tony rice and that that was the jimmy goodrow lineup like jimmy goodrow ricky simpkins ronnie simpkins wyatt rice and uh, then the All-Star Jam was Tony and Sam Bush and Jerry Douglas and Mark O'Connor and Mark Schatz. And uh, do you know the one I'm talking about? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that was my one of my really early influences. Those You could just listen to those for years and not have anything else. And it's got all you want <laughs> on there. Oh, yeah. It's amazing, and it's a perfect example of people playing well together. And you know, half that video, about half of it, is what was probably a thrown-together set, not in a careless manner, but they probably didn't plan a whole lot of things out. They're playing like Red Hair Boy and stuff. When I first, my dad first turned it on, he was like, watch that guy in the middle. You see that guy in the suit? You see how he's singing right now? Now watch, look, he looks at that other guy, and he nods at him. Now that guy's going to take a solo. It was like my first education in how to jam with other people and how the etiquette works and the signals. And there's not, there's nothing better. Yeah, and you can't learn from much of a better person than uh, Tony Rice that way. Oh, he's so incredible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you've got a Tony Rice connection also coming up on your album as I keep teasing this new release of yours. <laughs> oh, yeah, the core, the core band had Wyatt Rice in it, and I just... Uh, I did my best to not say anything embarrassing the whole time because he's <laughs> such a hero of mine. <laughs> yeah, you got a pretty stacked lineup on your album. Quite, quite the lineup, and it was really incredible getting to play with all of them. Uh, they're just they, they were all my first choice of who could play on it. You know, I wasn't sure with uh, trying to get people all in the same place if that would happen, and it it did happen, and it was just. It was like a dream the whole week playing with all those people. I can't imagine, man. I can't imagine. So after you, um, after you, you graduate, 
what does that what does that end up looking like for you there? So after I graduated college, I was still playing with the Allen Monday Gazette, but that band had started working less and less, and I moved back to the Dallas area where I was from, and I got uh, really discouraged in music at the time. You know, I I never practiced effectively. That's one thing that nobody ever taught me was how to practice well, how to get results. So mm-hmm. I'd always follow the advice of, you know, just, the, oh, just keep on keeping on, you know, that <laughs> kind of thing. And, you know, that doesn't work. And uh, so about 2012, 2011, maybe, I got really discouraged and I just completely quit music. I was looking around at people who had played the same amount of time as me and I thought they're better and I'm not getting better. Like, I guess I just didn't get hit with the talent stick. You know, I had this belief in innate talent, which is not a belief I hold anymore. And so I went to school to be a mechanic, a motorcycle mechanic. And I got there and on the first day they said, you may have failed in education in other places, and we're going to teach you how to learn. And they did. That's where I learned how to be good at stuff. And I ended up getting back into music. And one day I was in, uh, it was really hard to find a parking place at Motorcycle Mechanics Institute. I got there, I found a parking place, I'm in my starch shirt, and I'm about to go in there to go mechanic for the day. And I thought, you know what? I want to play the mandolin. And I drove home and made plans to move to Nashville and did a couple of weeks after. <laughs> wow. Um, what is it, what were some of the things that kind of helped you learn that you learned at this mechanic class that, that had kind of been missing? It might be too much to, it might be a pretty broad subject, but um, there, there, there must've been I a think little I bit can of give you a, I think I can give you a short version of it. It sure. is a broad subject. Uh, so basically they focused on fundamentals. You spent the first, it was about six weeks, and you, you didn't touch a tool or a part or anything other than some demonstrations and stuff. They wanted you to understand every bit of how things work and the fundamentals. And it was all about, these are the building blocks of what you're going to do. You need to be good at these things. And they really approached different people's learning styles well. They were really supportive. If somebody wasn't getting it, they would help you with it. And it really helped me learn that, you know, you can't go straight to, you know, you can't go straight to the advanced stuff if the building blocks aren't there. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started really working on things like the timing of eighth notes, actually having a good chop instead of phoning it in, those kinds of things. And it was, a, it was somewhat indirect, but I was able to take the things that they did, the way that they approached, you got to know this if you want to do that, and applied it to the mandolin, and it worked. That's awesome. <laughs> that's so cool. You also have a great section on your website of books, um, like The Practice of Practice, I think, is one of them on there. And um, yeah. yeah, I love that, man. I'm a, I love all that nerdy stuff of like, I say nerdy in the greatest of compliments, by the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, but like um, somebody had posted a link to, uh, to books. I was, I think might be one of your students. Um, I'm going to say her name wrong. Mikel? Michael? Mikel? Mikel. Yes. Mikel, yeah. And she yep. she had posted a link to your uh, website, some books, and I'm like, oh, I love all this stuff. And I actually had went out and got the practice of practice. and It's a cool book, man. Oh, I'm so glad you were into that one. I've got to give Mikel a shout out, too, uh, just because she is one of the most dedicated mandolin students. And uh, she's uh, learned from me and a number of other teachers and players and she's just she's eaten up with it and she practices correctly and i just keep seeing her get better so shout out mikhail because i know she listens to this nice this nice podcast. job mikhail. <laughs> that's awesome uh, so uh yeah that book list was also you know the the motorcycle mechanics school learning experience was what got me into looking for books to learn to get better at stuff when i first moved to nashville i i went and crashed the nashville Clawhammer camp and there was some guy there. I don't remember his name. If you're out there listening, this guy, he told me to read the book called Mastery by Robert Greene. And it was about all these masters of various things like Benjamin Franklin, Michael Faraday, Leonardo da Vinci. And it was about how they learned to be good at stuff. And it kind of gave a blueprint for learning to be good at stuff. And whoever that guy is that told me to read that book, it got me reading again. And I started finding all these books about reading, and they've been a huge part of me learning to be a better player and just be better at everything. And that book list is the result of starting with that first book, Mastery, by Robert Greene. 
That's great. And that, yeah, I'll have a link to that page. I'll have a link to your website, actually, but I'll also put a separate link to that, to that thing because there's some great books on there. And for me, I find, too, those books, I can't listen to music before I go to bed anymore because I analyze it so much that the minute I shut it off, my brain doesn't shut off. All I'm thinking about is getting up and picking up a mandolin and trying to uh, <laughs> play what I just listened to. But I find if I listen, if I read those books, it kind of sets me up for the next morning. Like I'll read that and be like, ah, you know what? I think that's how I'm going to start uh, practice tomorrow or as to what I'm going to work on. And I can kind of shut off a little bit by reading. Oh, that's pretty awesome. I, I like that approach because our brains do so much for us while we're sleeping. And yeah. There's a lot to, to be said for reading something about what you're going to do tomorrow and then sleep on it. Yeah, for sure, man. And you know, I wish I could listen to Sam Bush before I went to bed, but I would probably uh, never get any sleep. <laughs> be like, oh, I, I know what you going. mean. The gears get cranking. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so you come back to Nashville, you, or you moved to Nashville. I'm sorry. You moved to Nashville. And uh, uh, what happens for you there? Nothing. Nothing happened. I got to <laughs> Nashville. and <laughs> it, Yeah, it's funny now. Uh, but I, I got to Nashville. I had paid two months of rent ahead of time to a DJ I didn't know. Her name's Echo Prop, and uh, she's real nice. I didn't know her. Uh, John Weisberger had hooked me up with a, a place to stay, and I'd paid two months of rent, and I had $40, two $20 bills, and that was it. I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew I was going to Nashville. And uh, right away, I had three gigs the first weekend, and I was like, this is going to be amazing. And then I didn't have a gig again for months. Wow. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there's an amazing bluegrass scene here. And I knew a lot of people here as well, but I didn't really know how to get out into a scene. And something I didn't know or understand that I understand very well now is that somebody can know you and you can be a pretty good picker. And I was I was OK when I moved to Nashville. Um, but people are still going to call their normal mandolin player or their normal fiddle player. You know, they're not going to just shift gears and call you because you moved to town and you happen to know them. There's a little bit of waiting your turn mixed in with a lot of getting to know people and being out there on the scene. So it was a little while. Uh, but the big catalyst for me was I decided there's not any gigs for me. I'd like to get more involved. And I, I uh, applied for the Leadership Bluegrass Program in 2014. Oh, I'd been in yeah. Nashville about two years. And I was accepted, and which is pretty cool. It's it's hard to get into, and the selection committee was kind enough to let me in, as inexperienced as I was in the industry. And that I learned so much there. I've been involved in the program ever since. Yeah, that's that's great. The IBM that's the IBMA one, correct? That is, yep. It's uh, every every March, and uh, now the chair of the program. Anybody out there listening who wants to get involved, the applications start in September. And uh, it's it's we get a lot of applicants, usually like at least 75 to pick a class of 25. Wow. So anybody out there who has applied and didn't get accepted or is planning to apply, it's really common to apply several times. Keep applying. We'd love to have you in there. It's a great program. That's so cool, man. Yeah, the IBMA has been doing a, just a lot. And the people who have come out of that, that program, um, uh, you know, like CJ, uh, from the uh, Poe Ramblin' boys had nothing but great stuff to say yeah. after going to that, you know, and look at look at what's happened after after he went. <laughs> not to not to take away from, uh -huh. but that just shows you a guy how talented he is. Um, you can have all the talent in the world, but sometimes you you got to find different like forge different paths to uh, to make it happen. It's a tough business. Yeah, you definitely have to go and make it happen. CJ is a great example of doing that. It makes me think of something they always said in mechanic school. They said, you can be the best wrench in the shop, but if you don't go to the shop, it doesn't matter. Right, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> so exactly. You have to go and make something happen. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's the part. And, you know, I think the part that some people, in anything, you know what I mean, in practicing and getting better, at, you know, a mandolin or just anything, if you're just going to wait for it to happen, you're going to be waiting a long time. Exactly. Yeah, sitting at home. That's what I did my first couple of years in Nashville. Pretty <laughs> much waited for the phone to ring. And then after a while, I thought, well, I guess maybe I should organize some things. I started organizing some gigs and stuff like that. And uh, and then uh, after that, started getting calls from uh, the, the first, first uh, touring act 
that that brought me on for anything was I was filling in with Brad Folk and the Bluegrass Playboys. Uh, that was the first time I ever played Somewhere Far Away, which is track four on my new album. I like the seasons for all kinds of reasons. The way that they change the trees and the leaves on them makes me feel like I'm somewhere far away. I like the lights on the wings of a jetliner as they blink out and they cut through the cloud cover. Uh, played some fiddle. His normal fiddler was Christian Settlemeyer, but Christian's a busy guy, and I got to fill in a few times uh, for that and then started playing with Irene Kelly after that, and that led to the Jim Hurst Trio, which I just want to mention for a second. We made an album I'm really proud of. It's called JHT1, and it didn't get out in the world very much. Oh, well, um, I'll play a track me, from that. that. Was... Oh, awesome. Uh, do, I, do I get to pick? Yeah, yeah, man. Which one? Man, so there's uh, one on there called Funky Flatfoot. And uh, I, I like that one a lot, just in general as a song, but also it was one where I had some influences from listening to Mike Marshall and Chris Feely on Into the Cauldron, had a couple little licks come out of there that I'd never really messed with before. And I was like, oh, I guess this is what happens when you listen to something 1,000 times. <laughs> <laughs> the osmosis effect. Yes. Uh, but that, that album that... Uh, chemistry between the three of us as musicians was a really fun thing to to do and it's just something i'll always be really proud of and, and it's great memories of that eric and jim are just amazing musicians oh that's amazing and then what happens from there for you so after that uh joined the becky buller band and i've now been in the band uh going on four years and this was by for much of my career, been known as a fiddle player. I always wanted to play mandolin, and I enjoy the fiddle, um, but pretty much every act that would ask me to play, uh, well, it started out with Steve Smith, who had been my mandolin teacher, was the mandolin player in all the bands I would play fiddle in. It was a pretty <laughs> obvious choice. Like, we're going to get the teacher, not the student. Um, <laughs> and so I'd always played fiddle in most of the things I'd done, and uh, the the Jim Hurst gig was the first one that I really got to get into some mandolin. It was still about 60-70% fiddle in that band, but I'd gotten a taste of like what it would be like if I could just be the mandolin player mm -hmm. in something. Becky gave me that option, and uh, I was really glad that I, that I took it. It's been a great chance to grow, and I get along really well with everybody in the band. I've learned so much just about grooves, and Becky's a really good uh, band leader. I've learned a lot about now, just it's a good situation as far as how she treats her band and she's she's really good at making a set list and arranging songs and traveling with Ned and then Dan who produced the album is just is a constant learning experience. It's really fun. That's cool. so nice, man. Um I've only seen live videos, but it looks like a, an incredible band <laughs> from YouTube. You know, it's so good. So if they come to your town once once playing live is um, allowed again <laughs> <laughs> safely uh, go see them <laughs> hopefully we'll all be back at it again and, and out there uh, in the world I look forward to getting back out and playing again yeah how much of your um how much of your time was when when it was normal was spent uh, traveling so we are a weekend warrior band uh, mm -hmm. Becky Becky always says her main gig is her daughter and uh, I've I have this teaching business, and uh, I think Ned's the only one without a day gig. Actually, Dan is the director of the bluegrass program at ETSU, and our bass player, Daniel, uh, he uh, makes Jack Daniels whiskey. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
So we tour on the weekends and not every weekend. It's right around two weekends a month or so. And Mm -hmm. uh, then like most acts, we have a little slow period through the winter. And that's just about right for me because uh, I like my house. I have set it up to be very comfortable for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's great. That's, that's, that's a great situation to have though, to be able to, uh, you've obviously aligned yourself up with some great students and, um, you know, just judging from your workload, you, that, I think that says a lot about a teacher when anybody can handle that many amount of students for a consistent amount of time, you're doing something right. I've managed to connect with people that, that I really connect with, you know, for some reason, I don't know exactly what leads to this, but my demographic is largely people who are about 35 to 70 and most of them are like doctors and lawyers and veterinarians and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. I think it's mainly because I'm a no guilt teacher. Like <laughs> you're going to have to make yourself feel bad if you didn't practice kind of a thing. You know, I'll help you like help them get better. Um, but there's not going to be guilt. We're going to feel good and we're going to feel happy during the whole lesson. And I think that helps a lot to bring in uh, people who like to stay around. And it's been really cool. You know, when I was not a very good teacher, people didn't stay around very long and that book list that we were talking about helped me become a better teacher. And now people tend to stay for years and it's really neat. Let's dig into your new album, Wings of a Jetliner. I've been lucky enough to have it early uh, and been listening to it for a few weeks here and just been enjoying the heck out of it. And uh, uh, congratulations on it. And I'd love to uh, love to pick your brain a bit about it if I could. Awesome. Sounds good. So first off, um, let's just start off with, the the band that you used, I know we mentioned a few, but the uh, the lineup on this band <laughs> is incredible. It's a dream band. Uh, you know, I, I can tell you a short story of how we got there. Uh, I was yeah. using Hattie B's Hot Chicken. Love Hattie B's, dude. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> Love amazing. It. It's worth the wait. <laughs> it is. It is worth the wait. And here's the hack for anybody: um, you order online. You go pick it up. You get to skip the line if you pick it up and just go eat in your car. Oh, <laughs> nice. That's a good tip. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm leaving Hattie B's, and Dan Boner calls me. He produced the album, and he's the guitar player in the Becky Buller band, for any of the listeners who might not be familiar, or if I might have left anything out earlier. And uh, They said, tell me about what kind of album you want this to be. Tell me about the groove. And I've, you know, I've played a lot of different types of music and a lot of different types of grooves and and this album could have been a bunch of things. You know, the Becky Buller band tends to have a lot of like very mash grass sort of things. And one of the cuts on there has that type of sound, but I told them, you know, I really, I don't think I want to just do like, let's play more like the band I'm already in. I'd like to do something that it's own. That's kind of got its own life to it. And I like traditional bluegrass too, but that's not really my skill set either. And what I really want to do is I, whatever music we make, I'd like the groove to kind of have a groove like what a Tony Rice project would have had. Pick any of them. Like, just a groove that's kind of like that. And he said, oh, well, do you want me to call Wyatt Rice? And I said, yes. <laughs> yes, please, I would like you to call Wyatt Rice. So he called Wyatt. I called Todd Phillips, and we built the band around that. That's a and, pretty, uh, good base <laughs> to, uh, pretty good base to build a band around. <laughs> It, it, yeah, yeah, it is. Pun intended. Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, I, I played with Todd in the Jim Hurst Trio, and I just had known for years when I made my next album, that's where I wanted to go with that. And so uh, we then we called uh, Ned Luperecki next, and uh, he he's just got the timing and the tone. And, you know, the music I play on this album leans kind of in the new acoustic direction, mm-hmm. and it's not typical to have a banjo on that. Um, but Ned can do it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we got him, and then I called Bronwyn Keith Hines, and she was the last of the core band. Uh, she's an incredible fiddler, and, you know, I'm also a fiddle player, and, and if I'm going to have a fiddler on my album, I want somebody who's going to do something that I wouldn't have brought to it. Uh, I want somebody just fantastic, and she is that. Yeah, and she plays and, in Mile uh, 12, right? Yeah, yeah, fiddler for Mile 12, one of my favorite bands out there, and uh, just I'd heard her play a lot with them and I had to have that sound. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, the one thing I um, love about your album before we would dive right into it is you say that it's kind of um, the groove thing is there. It's it, what I love about it is there's a variety of songs that uh, you can tell there's a theme to the album, but there's not really, it's not like 
one um it's not vanilla, you know what I mean? It's not just one flavor. It's a bunch of different stuff. And I've been listening to it while I've been going on walks and runs, and I'm always surprised at how quick it seems to be over um, for 12 tracks because it's just an easy listen, man. I mean, it's just like, oh, my gosh. I can't believe it's done. Oh, man. <laughs> well, thank you. That's the highest compliment. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. You're welcome. It's a great album, man. It really, really is. And uh, and it kicks off with track one, which is Wonder Bat. Wonder Bat is my mandolin. It's built by Pava Mandolins out of Texas. And uh, it's just been my main act since I got it in 2016. I had uh, called them up. Uh, I wanted to do an endorsement deal with them. And I wrote this whole proposal. I called Tom Ellis up in 2016. I said, I've written this proposal. I want you to make an artist deal. Will you read it? And he said, well, you're kind of late to the party, Nate. We're already building you one. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had one of their A models, and I just, I, I had unintentionally sold a bunch of them for them. <laughs> and uh, so I said, well, that's amazing. I worked really hard on this proposal. Will you read it anyway? <laughs> so then I sent it to him. <laughs> I don't know if he read it. Um, but this song was just something I developed on this mandolin and the idea, and I don't usually do concepts for songs, but the idea was I wanted to kind of in the song, do all the things I really like about this mandolin. So it has, it's, you know, quick pace and it's got chopping and it's got, you know, this mandolin just drives a snot out of a bluegrass band and mm. it's got that, uh, and it also, in the soloing, I took a little exploration into mimicking some of my favorite players. So you can hear some Monroe in there and some Sam Bush and some Ronnie McCurry and things like that. Uh, within the solo, it's a, a very scattered solo for that reason. But there were just all these things I wanted to, to do on the mandolin, and it's a short song. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's a, the coolest part about it, too, is you get all those you get all of those in there, and the track is less than two minutes long. And I was just like, wow. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it goes by fast. <laughs> how did you um how did you come up with the name Wonder Bat? So there is a Simpsons episode called Homer at the Bat. <laughs> oh, and yeah. uh, it's uh I found out later it's a spoof of the movie The Natural. Uh so Homer's bat is called the Wonder Bat. He uh there's this huge thunderstorm and and he's outside, so he shelters himself under a giant piece of sheet metal and runs under the largest tree he can find. And um, lightning strikes, knocks down this branch, and he builds a bat he can hit home runs with. Uh, and uh, I feel that way about the Wonder Bat. You know, when I first played it, and really any of the Pava Mandolins, they have an obsession and consistent sound, mm -hmm. uh, just incredibly consistent sound. And uh, I just feel like when I pick them up, I can do things that didn't come out on other ones. And uh, so I, I named it the Wonder Bat because of that. And then later uh, found out uh, about the movie The Natural. Ned Lubarecki was hanging out with Sam Bush and they were talking about my mandolin and the name of it. Uh, and, uh, and Ned said, yeah, it's from a Simpsons episode. And apparently Sam said, oh, well, that's talking about the movie The Natural. There's a bat called Wonder Boy. So <laughs> I went and watched that movie and learned something about my mandolin's name I didn't even know. That's um, awesome. <laughs> Nice to have Sam Bush and uh, Ned talking about you, too. <laughs> uh, that, yeah, that was pretty cool. <laughs> also, track right after that, Tobacco. Really, really cool uh, story song. Judge it from his stand. Seven widows weeping caused by tobacco plants. This was written by Daniel Salyer, who sings tenor on a number of the songs on the album as well. And there's cool history. Uh, Dan Boner sent me this track, and he said um, he sent me a whole Dropbox of things from Daniel Salyer, and he said, especially I want you to check out Tobacco and go Google the history, and there's a lot of true history behind it. 
and it's some interesting stuff. Uh, and the, the protagonist in this story is somebody who is uh, is basically a scab. Uh, there was a lot of messed up things happening during the Black Patch Tobacco Wars, and it kind of winds up in in him having to defend his life uh, before they uh, show up to they show up to burn his crops uh, and to shoot him. Uh, I presume. Uh, so he settles it, maybe not in the way we would hope things get settled now, but they started the fight and he ended it. Yeah, and, and I should point out, you mentioned you didn't sing, but um, or you hadn't sung initially, but you have a great voice. Oh, well, thank you so much. You know, I've always played with these great singers, and there were, I just never really jumped in that much. Over the years, I sang some in the different bands. I sang a little with the Alan Mundy Gazette, mostly baritone. I hadn't. I hadn't found my higher range yet. I didn't know how to how to get that to come out. Mm-hmm. I took lessons from Dee Dee Wyland and Stephen Mojan, uh, both of them each for about a year, and learned so much from that. Came out of it a totally different singer. And then Dan Boner is an incredible vocal coach, and he coached me through the whole process from when we first started the songs all the way through the recording of it. And then a totally different thing than if I hadn't gone and learned from those people. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I was surprised. I, um, I expected it to be an all-instrumental album for some reason, and um, when I got to track two, I'm like, oh, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I expected this one to be all-instrumental for the longest time. This, in, this album, I knew I was going to make it at some point, and then I got into the singing, and at some point I thought, you know what, I'm going to sing on this album, and so I did. It turned out I thought it was going to be like one or two songs, and by the time we were done, it was seven. Yeah, good choice, man. <laughs> good call. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, man, absolutely. And speaking of uh, instrumentals, though, Quick Select. So quick Select. This is one of my favorites, and it has a long history. I went to, uh, before I went to South Plains College, I went to Cedar uh, Valley College, a community college in Dallas, where I studied music theory with Dr. Sam Germany, who has been one of the biggest musical influences. He never taught me a note to play, but he taught me all about how music goes together. And we had an assignment. You had to write a melody, and you had to use every chord in the key. Oh, cool. Um, which, when you hear the song, you can kind of hear how that came about, because, man, it, the chords changed too much, way too much. It's a nightmare. <laughs> it's a jam buster. for the album but it was you know i had written it when i was doing dual credit courses when i took those music theory classes i was about 16 when i wrote the song and there were just some things i really didn't like about it so i rewrote a couple different measures around the song got rid of the c-sharp diminished chord that didn't go there but it fulfilled the assignment <laughs> and uh, and then ruined the band's day with these chord changes but they they knocked it out of the park anyway but when i gave them the chart I, they were just like really <laughs> Really? And then they played amazing. Oh, that's great. By the way, I want to also mention how I love how you got the the name of the album from a line from the song, Somewhere Far Away. I always think that's really clever. That's one of my favorite things, man, is listening to an album that doesn't have a track named after it, and then you're listening and you catch the name of the song. I'm like, ah, or the name of the album. I love it. So that was a bonus for me. (laughs) That's Becky Buller influence right there. She names her albums after lines and songs and I was going to do a title track and I went through every single title and every one of them, I couldn't picture the album with that title, what the theme, and I wanted it to somehow fit together. And there is slightly more to how this theme fits together, which is I'm a travel enthusiast. I really like to fly on planes, like to, I want a window seat. I've figured out the points game to where I get to sit where I want when I fly <laughs> and, uh, and to be comfortable at at the airport. Any musicians out there, if you want to know how to fly comfortably, I'm talking front of the plane and lounges, give me a call. I'll talk your ear off about it and show you how to do it. And I listened to these mixes. The first mixes were when I was traveling a lot. Most of them I listened to making notes and all that on airplanes. So there's a big airplane connection to this record. Wow. I might pick your brain about that here once we get back to traveling again. (laughs) Totally. Anytime. Call me. (laughs) Uh, the Serenity also has a 
a guest mandolin player on there, an incredible track. And this one is really special to me. Uh, we got we got Thomas Castle on this one to play mandolin. Uh, I wrote this song around the band we were going to have, specifically around Todd and Wyatt. Uh, I had reharmonized a, a Celtic song, and um, I really enjoy reharmonizing things. And I had gotten more and more to where the reharmonization was probably not helping the song. <laughs> and it occurred to me, this is probably trying to be another song rather than me ruining someone else's song. And I'd have this kind of in the back of my mind for years. And when I chose the core band, I thought, you know what, I'm going to go write that song. And I wrote it just thinking of how Todd and Wyatt would play uh, with songs like uh, Jazz Grass Waltz or Common Ground or My Favorite Things, those types of songs in mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I told Dan when we were arranging it, I said, I want to do two mandolins on this. And I was about to open my mouth to say, let's get Thomas Castle. And he said, well, what about Thomas Castle? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And that solo in the middle, for all the listeners out there, uh, that solo in the middle is Thomas. Um, I played the melody, man, the mandolin melody at the beginning and the end on my Pava A model. And uh, that middle one solo is Thomas on his Sam Bush model Gibson. It is one of my favorite parts of the album. I can hear his solo like I've had a thousand times since we recorded it. I've been like just doing something, playing a video game or something, and his solo goes note for note through my head involuntarily over and over. It just it taught me that much. It was amazing. Oh, and, such a great player. Such yeah, a great, he's he's gonna be on in a few weeks that? too, by the way, Thomas is for oh, all you listening. Yeah, oh. they he's got a they um him and his brother have a project coming out and uh we're waiting for a release date and then we're gonna do the interview. Oh, man, that's going to be great. I can't wait to listen to it. I've been sticking to listening in order for some strange reason. Yeah, no, that's uh, cool. And I probably still will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. That's so great. And it also has a little bit of a dog flavor, huh? Do you? Am I wrong in saying that? A little David grisman Oh, not at all. It has a whole <laughs> lot of dog flavor. You know, one of my first touring acts was in this band called Hard Road, and it still exists as a trio, the Hard Road Trio. And their mandolin player, Steve Smith, uh, there's, you know, of course, three Steve Smiths in Mandolin. This one is the one in New Mexico, uh, who would be an amazing guest on your podcast. Oh, sweet. He knows so much about Mandolin. He is incredible and a real nice guy. You'd have a fun chat with him. Cool. Um, so that band, we, we didn't exactly play dog music, but we played, it was a lot of singing songs, everything in minor, very solo intensive. And it was just like an education in and playing in minor for me as a fiddle player at the time. And uh, when I play songs of this nature, I often do pick up the fiddle. And this is one that one of the tracks I played fiddle on, and it's just like a playground <laughs> for fiddle playing. And uh, that dog influence, you know, when I first started learning from Steve, he never stopped talking about David Grisman, and we listened to, to dog music together as part of my lessons, and that influence has stuck with me forever. Yeah, that's great. And the, just the two mandolins, too, is uh, another little tip of the hat. I love it. And then I also do real quick want to mention, too, Rook Roller, which was aired a few weeks ago. It was uh, premiered on the podcast. And thank you so much for, for letting me play one of the tracks from the album ahead of time. Thank you for debuting the track. That was really cool that you were willing to 
to do that. Uh, the Rook Roller I wrote while watching TV. I, I'm a big fan of TV and video games, all the things that you're not supposed to do if you're a serious musician. <laughs> and, uh, I was watching the show The Rookie, um, which there's a connection to Serenity. The Serenity is named after the spaceship on Firefly. And Nathan Fillion, the star of Firefly, is the star of The Rookie, which is why I started watching it. And I was sitting there doodling, and I made up the uh, the riff at the beginning of it. That whole thing. And uh, so uh, I I was going to call it The Rookie at first. And Ned, uh, Ned pointed out, he was like, you know, this isn't a problem, but you're not, you don't really watch baseball that much. Everybody's going to think it's, it's a baseball reference and is that what you're after? And I thought, you know what? I'm, I, you know, I like baseball. I like to watch the Nashville sounds play sometimes, but I couldn't tell you all the rules and everything. And, right, and right. I have this song, <laughs> I have this song naming thing I do. Cause that's really difficult to name instrumentals that you just wrote on the couch sometimes. So I play this song and I wait for something to pop into my head that fits. Yeah. And this chess move I like called the rook roller popped into my head and I don't, if you've played chess much, some of your listeners, uh, definitely, uh, uh, there seems to be a lot of nerdery and mandolin. So I'm sure some of your <laughs> listeners do, but we have this move where you take your two rooks and you move them one at a time on adjacent ranks or files and you crowd their king into the corner. And it's just this accelerating effect. There's nothing they can do about it. And you checkmate them. And the intro to me, it just... <laughs> It almost reminded me a little bit when I first heard it, um, almost the intro sort of reminded me a little bit of a Beatles tune, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, just a like a hint of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, it wasn't intended to do that, but I had a pretty serious Beatles listening phase as a teenager, and I know that's why those notes come out. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. They're one of my favorite bands, man, as much as I love uh, mandolin and bluegrass and all things like that. Um, it's tough to beat hundreds of great, well-written songs. <laughs> you could tell you're proud of the album. You should be proud of the album. It's 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 wonderful. Thank you. I'm I'm I can't wait for the world to hear it, man, because it's just one of those ones that, you know, it's I can I mean I've listened to it a lot already, and it's just become like a regular thing for me. Like I get in the vehicle and just that's what I throw on, and and not just because I was interviewing you, because but because this the songs are just so good, and there's so much great mandolin tone. Your tone is amazing. Uh, it is so full and clear and powerful. Yeah, wow. Oh. <laughs> man, thank you. That that means a lot coming from a total mandolin nerd like you. <laughs> oh man, thanks. Yes, I mean, yeah, I did. <laughs> I just, I mean, again, it's, it's one of those ones that it makes me want to practice um, and, and practice slowly and listen. That's such a hard thing sometimes to do, I think, when you're playing mandolin is the you want to just tear and rip through tunes. But I've really been trying, especially during this quarantine time, is to just listen and, and move my head around and get that tone. And, and, um, and your album drives me to, to perfect it, which is the highest compliment I think I can give a mandolin player anyway is to make me want to play more. Oh, man, thank you so much. Just for the players out there who are listening, uh, I used to make pretty bad tone, and I had always felt like there's the tone players, and they always played that way. They were born that way. And then there's the rest of us who aren't the tone players. Uh, and during that time at the Motorcycle Mechanics Institute, I started to really get into when I realized Steffi actually played that way and you know, started to get into these tone players. I thought, well, I could try to make it a little more like that. And ever since, and I've never stopped, I've been trying to make it more and more like Reichman and Steffi and Chrisman and Feely and Mark Stoffel, one of the best tone players in the world, Mark Stoffel. Uh, I just emulate them. Uh, and Gerald Jones, that's the other one. I just have copied their tone ever since, and I continue to do it, and I won't stop. That's awesome. What are some ways that you um, that you would recommend to somebody who's like listening to this going like, but I don't know what that means, how to get better tone? What's like one tip you would uh, – you know what? Let's, let's slide this into the 10 minutes a day thing, if you don't mind. If you had 10 minutes to work on your tone and you were going to recommend something to someone, what would you recommend them to work on? Oh, this is actually, I knew the 10 minute thing was coming because I listened to your podcast and I was going to slide into that too with your permission. So uh, <laughs> yeah. 
to, to answer both of them because this is what I do in my 10 minutes uh, is uh, when it comes to tone, you know, the, the right hand starts the tone and the left hand finishes it. And one can mess up the other. Um, so it all starts with the, the instigator of the tone, our right hand. So it has to do with the contact of the pick on the string and the angles and things that a lot of people are aware of. Um, but specifically, there's this feeling that we need to get to. And I want to just clarify what I call good tone may not be what everybody calls good tone. There's a lot of good tones out there. Um, so this isn't to say that another tone isn't good because we have a use for all of them and everybody has their own voice. Um, but my favorite tones come from a just firm enough contact with the pick that when you make, say, a downstroke, you feel that pick solidly against the thumb and feel it pull away from the index finger slightly. And then the opposite on the upstroke. And it's, it's not a hold it so loose you're about to drop it, and it is not a death grip to make the type of tone I make. So when I have 10 minutes, I do that. I start with downstrokes and upstrokes, work my way into string crossings, but then here's the second half, finger placement in the fret and sustain. And there is, you know, there's the ideal placement that I think most people are aware of that as close as you can get to the fret without actually being on top of it. And I take that to an extreme. Uh, if my finger can stick over the fret just the tiniest little bit, it takes a little bit of brightness out of the tone that I like to use sometimes. And it, it makes just a rounder. It's, it's something I happened on by accident, probably through poor technique, um, but it <laughs> makes a little bit of a difference. And I'm not talking about sitting on the fret. I'm just talking about kind of flirting with the line of sitting on the fret. So part of my finger is hanging out above the fret a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, I sit there and do that when I have 10 minutes and make the sustain as long as I can make it, which I choose mandolins for ones that make more sustain as well. But I just try to make that note last as long as I can make it and not have dead space between the notes that doesn't have to be there. I try to shorten that as much as possible so that it sounds as much as I can like one note just turned into the next one. Nice. And, and, and not that this necessarily has to do with tone because I – I'm a firm believer of tone is in the hands of the person playing it in time and stuff, but, but it is a nerdy mandolin podcast. And I like to ask what kind of strings and picks you use as well. Oh, definitely. So I use blue chip picks, uh, been on the TPR 50 for quite a while. I always used a, a different one. I used the tad size. Um, and, uh, last year I got into a little smaller pick, uh, just because, I realized I was holding on to more than the size of my fingers needed to hold on to. Mm -hmm. uh, so got a little smaller size. And then um, I am one of the many people mourning the loss of the EXP 74 CM strings. Yes. Um, it's been phased out. I really hope they bring it back. Um, I bought 50 sets of them. So we'll <laughs> uh, hopefully they have a shelf life. Um, after that, I guess I'm going to go to the XT. The thing is, the XT is a great string, um, but it's made to sound like a non-coded string. Right. And I like the sound of coded strings. A lot of people have been uh, a lot of people have been mourning the loss of those strings. It's I... a real bummer, and I'm a big fan of the company. Uh, but I really hope they bring back this set of strings. I've never played anything that fits me like these do. Yeah, you're not the only one, man. I'll be surprised if they don't. So. I don't know if anybody from Diodario listens to this, but <laughs> so, and then the final question, as it is the mandolins and beer podcast, do you have a favorite beer? So I have favorite types of beer. Yeah. Uh, there's been times when I've had a certain favorite beer um, and your podcast actually has made me go kind of beer crazy lately uh, with the baby <laughs> on the way. We have been on extreme quarantine yeah. and, until last week, I had not had a beer since my vacation, my Christmas vacation in Germany, where, you know, that's a pretty great place to drink some beer. For sure. But your podcast has been driving me nuts. <laughs> so finally, I found somewhere to get some curbside uh, curbside beer where we could get it contactless and got a couple. And uh, so in general, I like IPAs a lot. Mm -hmm. Um and then if I'm not looking for much alcohol content and I just want to just enjoy a beer, I go for a Pilsner. Um, so this last week, actually, I found a place I could go get some beer. And they didn't have a Pilsner, but 
I've been trying this Narragansett uh, lager. Oh, okay, yeah. Uh, my wife is from Rhode Island, and, and she was going through the menus like, oh, here's somewhere you can get some beer. And uh, she's from Rhode Island. She recognized it. She's like, you should get some of this. And uh, I got that, and I liked it. And I also got a, a, a Good People IPA, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. And really enjoyed that as well. But in general, IPAs and Pilsners, that's what I drink. <laughs> oh, that's awesome, man. And Nashville Nashville's a pretty good place to get some of to get some beers too. There's some great breweries. Every time I every time I go to Nashville, I'm always like, Oh my gosh, I have some favorites, but then there's these new ones I gotta check out. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, I heard Jared Walker, I think it was Jared Walker talking about the chicken scratch uh that they make here at the um uh, the name of the brewery is escaping me. I used to drink that all the time. So I've been craving that like crazy because he mentioned that you know, on the podcast. Yeah, that's classic. <laughs> um, well, well, Nate, man, it has been a just a pleasure talking with you. Wings of a Jetliner is out now. Um, we're, you know, obviously you've heard some tracks from it. If you haven't already paused and gone and purchased it, um, you know, it's obviously going to be available on all things. But this quarantine stuff affects all musicians. So if you can go out and purchase this album from Nate, that's the way I recommend you do it. And uh, thank you for being on the podcast, man. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. I've had an incredible time. I love listening to the podcast. I can't wait to get started with the next, I think it's episode 13, John Reichman. I'm going to listen to it today. Awesome, man. Thank you so much, Nate. All right. Thanks again so much to Nate. Be sure to go check out his website. I've got all the links at mandolinsandbeer.com. Uh, he's got a website with all his information on it. He's also got his Play Nately website where you can sign up for lessons. Thanks again to my sponsors, AnyTune, Peghead Nation, and, of course, my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Uh, cheers, everybody. Take care. Talk to you next week.